the courage to lead episode 240 you're listening to the ib4e coaching podcast brought to you by ib4e coaching business coaching for executives entrepreneurs and small business professionals learn more at ib4e-coaching.com Hey, Coach Harlan here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you're having a phenomenal week. I'm having a great week, and I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today. Please help me welcome Frank Ramos. Frank Thanks Ramos. Is, me. I'm sorry. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. No, it's good to have you on, man. Been looking forward to the conversation. All right. Frank is an attorney based in Miami, Florida. Um, his practice includes commercial litigation, drug and medical devices, products, employment, eminent domain, insurance, and catastrophic personal injury. Frank is an AV rated, and that's a peer review rating for the highest level of professional excellence, and is listed in Best Lawyers in America, Super Lawyer, and Legal Elite. In 2020, Best Lawyers recognized him as a Lawyer of the Year in Product Liability Defense Litigation. Frank has written over two, uh, over 20 books and 400 articles for lawyers. Frank speaks extensively on leadership, executive presence, litigation, management, strategic planning, diversity, mentoring, and pre-trial and trial skills. Frank, welcome to the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, this is good. 20 books and 400 articles. What is it that makes attorneys so prolific? Um, I think we're all failed writers. I think we all want to write the great American novel, and now we're here practicing law instead. So that's yeah. the best explanation I can come up with. <laughs> so is this a warm-up for you? Do you have a Do you have a novel in, in you? I actually do. It's a novel that I started a few years ago and I pick up and put down. It's sort of a futuristic legal thriller. Um, nice. It's ironically with all the AI going on and chat GPT, uh, now it doesn't seem as crazy as an idea as when I first concocted it, but the idea is that uh, it's the first Android lawyer and what comes with that. And so um, a few years ago, that seemed outrageous now not as much yeah that's awesome well when you get the book done we'll have you back on the podcast <laughs> Fair okay. enough. all right um i want to come and, and and you know talk about how you got started how you got to where you are now some of the things you're doing and involved in but before we get started i've got 10 questions that i ask every one of my guests now listeners know these are the questions made famous on the tv show inside the actor's studio where the host James Lipton asks these same questions of his guests from hollywood tv film and stage and i figure if they're good enough for the hollywood elite they're certainly good enough for my guests. So, Frank, if you're ready, 10 questions for you, sir. Question number one, what is your favorite word? My favorite word is ubiquitous because uh, for the longest time, I had no idea what it meant. And once I learned it, I ended up using it a lot. Nice. All right. What is your least favorite word? Impossible. Because the more I see people, the more I realize that word doesn't mean a whole lot. Absolutely. All right. What turns you on? Uh, the ability to have a very deep and thoughtful conversation with somebody going beyond just sort of the small talk. Nice. What turns you off? Small talk primarily, especially when you're having the same conversation with the same person for the fourth or fifth time because they're really not listening to you. Absolutely. All right. What sound or noise do you love? Uh, the sound of birds in the morning here in Miami, uh, plentiful, especially some parrots that have made nests nearby. Nice. All right. What uh, sound or noise do you hate? Uh, the morning traffic on the way to work. A lot of porns in Miami. Yeah. All right. Question seven. What is your favorite curse word? Uh, you know, Miles Davis in his autobiography used this word in every form, the mother effing word. 
and um, it probably appeared at least four or five times on every page of his autobiography. And, uh, and uh, if he can use it, then I suppose we can all somehow find a way to build it into our own vocabulary. There you go. All right. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Probably be a novel novelist. And what profession would you not like to do? Surgeon. I don't think I could really uh, stomach the side of blood too well. Yeah, I'm with you. All right. Final question. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, well, welcome. Yeah. Hopefully he's not surprised. <laughs> yeah. I always say, yeah, anything short of welcome is concerning, right? <laughs> so, yeah. For me, it'd be, uh, sorry, the line is over there. Right, right. So that way. Right. Uh, you're, you're in the wrong line, exactly. Exactly. All right. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I want to talk about how you got your start, uh, how you got to where to where you are now, who you work with, how you help them. And then at some point we'll transition into courage and leadership. All right. Great. All right. Listeners, we'll talk about all that and more right after this. So stick with me. Hey, Coach Arlen here. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you do, make sure you share it with your family, friends, colleagues. Uh, like it, leave a review, and definitely subscribe. When you subscribe, that helps boost the podcast to where it's uh, seen and heard in a lot of different areas. So make sure you hit that uh, subscribe button and subscribe. And uh, again, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy the episode. And I'm back with my guest, Frank Ramos. Thanks, Frank. Thanks again for being on the podcast, taking time out of your busy day. Um, so when you were a kid, did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? I watched a lot of Perry Mason, the black and white versions when I was a kid and watched a number of other legal shows and movies like The Verdict and it always intrigued me. There was a show on PBS when I was a child and it involved top trial lawyers and they would uh, do these short versions of actual trials. And it was fascinating and it was something always in the back of my mind that I wanted to do was either that or be a writer or maybe get into politics and law went out. Nice. Yeah. So you got your political science degree, right? I and did. Then, uh, uh, JD, I did. University right. of Miami. Um, did you have a specific area of study in law? No. Um, I went to University of Miami. Wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I uh, found a lot of local mentors who were more than willing and helpful to provide me some insight in terms of various career paths. Ended up doing uh, civil defense work right out of school, actually through school. I, I, I learned that a national defense firm. Worked there for a while. It was a little bit big for me and then ended up joining the firm I'm at now, which is about 10 to 12 lawyers and been here ever since. So been practicing about 26 and 25 at the current firm here in Miami. Wow. Nice. And you're a trial attorney, right? You actually go in and... I am. I try on average a case or two per year. Uh, it doesn't sound like a lot. We have mostly risk adverse clients, but we do try cases from time to time. I certainly do as well. Was that a draw for you? Do you like to get up in, in court and argue? It is. I mean, uh, for the longest time, I was actually just scared of saying anything publicly. And I made myself get over that through sort of behavioral therapy, just making myself go out there and, and speaking to people uh, in public events and settings. And with time, I was able to get very comfortable with it to the point where maybe I'm a little bit too comfortable with it. You always have to have a sort of level of tension and fear, I think. Sometimes fear is the appropriate response. But I, I do enjoy it, and it's fun to try to convince you know, six people in a box that your client should win, whether it's you know, playing on the defense side. I think both attorneys enjoy that process, enjoy the battle in the courtroom. Nice. Have you ever uh, argued in court at the federal level? 
I have. We used to do pro se pro bono work where basically there's a program called Lawyers Project here in South Florida. It's still on, but not as active, where the, you had a lot of individuals who represent themselves pro se and the judges weren't happy with them. And so they would ask local attorneys to represent to the trial. And I did four or five of those trials uh, with others in our office where basically you know, we didn't charge anything. We just did it um, pro bono and we represent these individuals just so the judge wouldn't have to deal with them. So they actually didn't know how to, you know, they're, they're not lawyers, obviously. Uh, and it was, it was a great process and it was a nice way to get back. Nice. Yeah. Why do people think they can represent themselves? Because usually things are a lot more complex than they think. I think people watch too much television and it's not like being a doctor or surgeon or accountant. Everybody kind of assumes, well, you just go up and, and you argue. People told me I was always would be really good at arguing things. And we handle our share of cases where we're defending matters from pro se plaintiffs. And they're generally the hardest cases to defend because they have no context. They have no real sense of what the rules are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't kind of draw within the line. So they're challenging both yeah. for the attorneys going against them and the judges presiding over those matters. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. It's not like you just watch a YouTube video and, oh, I can do this. <laughs> exactly. So 2020, lawyer of the year, product liability defense litigation. That's nice. Congratulations on that. Can you tell us any of any of the cases that you were involved in, what they what they entailed? Yeah, you know, I'm not really sure. Um, I'm trying to think back. We were involved in the opioid litigation on the defense side. We've been involved in a number of mass tort cases. Um, one of the areas I do practice is in products and in the products arena for a while, representing manufacturers and drug medical device companies. Um, and so there's probably some relationship there between what I did and the award. I don't know if it's just about that year, it's more cumulative for my career, but, um, but our firm has been known to be in that space for a while and it's, it's challenging. It's, you have to know the medicine, you have to know the chemistry, you have to obviously know the law. Uh, they're usually big state cases. It's never a one-off case. Generally, uh, a drug or a medical device affects, you know, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of people. So, it's all hands on deck, but it's very challenging. And, and for lawyers on both sides, I think they find it pretty rewarding. Well, you probably get a lot of experts involved, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. Very early on in the case, you quickly realize that you're ill-equipped to understanding the medicine or the science. And so you generally bring in uh, gold-plated experts that really sit down and explain to you uh, yeah. what they already know and what, you sh- what you're going to need to know in order to properly handle the matter. Nice. Any cases that stand out in your mind? Uh, you know, I've, like you mentioned eminent domain, I've, we've been doing a lot of eminent domain trials involving citrus canker and citrus disease in the state of Florida. And those are interesting cases because it's hard to make a case about trees interesting. And so just trying to uh, discuss issues of taking an eminent domain, which are kind of very nuanced areas of law, uh, and especially about trees, involve people, there's no emotions, uh, is challenging. So trying to find, trying to have complex things broken down in simple and direct ways so that six people who have no idea and have no background can understand it, I think is, is pretty fascinating. Well, yeah, usually eminent domain, it's uh, maybe a government taking property to put a roadway in or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, this in, our cases, yeah. in our cases, uh, there were regulations in a number of trees by nurserymen and 
grove owners were removed because of potential exposure to certain diseases and they were expecting or seeking compensation that's kind of uh, so you ended up having a lot of science there in terms of whether or not they actually were exposed to disease whether uh, they had any value because they were exposed to disease and, and as i'm talking out loud you can get a sense that this is not the most exciting stuff yeah. for your average juror who's watching you know movies and tv and you know this is not what they expected for a trial. So finding a way to take these kind of complex issues and make them digestible and interesting. Uh, I mean, they're interesting for me, but I don't think they're necessarily interesting for your average person. Um, yeah. it's, it's challenging. Yeah, I, I, I just love the law because there's, there's the law, there's everybody's interpretation of the law, and then there's how you present those things. So it's, it's, it, it's almost theater. And I don't mean to diminish it at all, but it's almost theater. You know, when you get in there and, and you're presenting your case and things like that, you want to engage with, if you have the the jury, you want to engage with them, you want to keep them compelled or, or impelled. Um, I, I think it's fascinating. I think it's awesome. It is. It's, it's um, like you said, there's so many different aspects to it. Everybody has a different view on it and judges aren't perfect. And sometimes they'll agree with you and sometimes they don't. Um, and trying to, sometimes you're convincing the judge as much as the jury and it's, it's a fascinating process. Yeah. So the books you've written, all the books and your articles and stuff are geared towards lawyers, right? Or people in the legal field? Right. They're geared towards lawyers or just professionals. Uh, they range from everything regarding their practice to leadership to mentoring to management to strategic planning. And a lot of the books I write don't really dive into a specific area of the law. They really talk about you know, marketing or sales or sort of the soft skills that most lawyers never learned or developed. and I think they transcend the legal arena to other fields as well, whether you're in sales or uh, you know, your doctor, your accountant, or some other professional. I think a lot of the things I talk about can help uh, folks in, in other white-collar uh, careers as well. Yeah. And I, yeah, I noticed uh, the Associates Handbook, where you kind of help lawyers improve their writing, business development, right, litigation skills, trial skills. The Whis uh, Associate Whisperer, where you're helping law firms know, like, who the right associate they should be looking for to hire them, how to retain those associates when they come in. Is this not something that's covered in law school? No, I think traditionally law school has been much more based on theory and reading, interpreting case law and statutes, which obviously is a very necessary, important aspect of what we do, but very little is spent on the soft skills, on the, on the entrepreneurial skills, on the business development skills, on the interpersonal skills, communication skills, and which always I find kind of humorous because you spend three years to do a complaint that's probably a year too long, but none of those, none of those three years is spent on things you actually need. And you know, everybody always laughs like, oh yeah, you didn't learn this in law school. It's just such a common catchphrase. And I've probably heard it hundreds of times when I was a young lawyer and I've probably said it hundreds of times since I stopped being a young lawyer and it still rings true. And I think law schools, some of them at least are evolving and they're trying to provide more practical skills. I think overall, even though there's been some improvement, there's still a lot more improvement to go. Yeah. And all your books and articles are available on your website, right? Right. Miami, uh, MiamiMentor.com. Right. They're available there and they're available uh, on my profile on LinkedIn. You scroll down to the publications. I think all but one is free. They're basically ebooks uh, that are written through uh, the coordination assistance with various voluntary bar associations. And again, for the most part, they are directly geared toward lawyers, but there's a lot of information that goes beyond that. I think the one book I'm thinking of is uh, 
is on personal strategic planning. You know, stop chasing gurus and do the hard work. And that book is pretty much about personal strategic planning and trying to figure out what your purpose in life is. And so that book is meant to go beyond just you know, lawyers themselves. Hmm. Nice. Very cool. So on the show, we talk about courage. Um, where do people find the courage to do the things they do? Where do you find the courage? A lot of entrepreneurs, where do you find the courage to leave the comfort zone of the nine to five job to create your, your, uh, your own success? Where do you find the courage to overcome setbacks uh, like divorce, bankruptcy, illnesses, death, failures? Um, in your career, did you have any setbacks like that? Anything you had to deal with? Yeah, you know, like I said earlier, I had a really hard time doing public speaking, which is ironic, as a trial lawyer. And for the longest time, I wouldn't even say maybe until the last few years, I wasn't especially good or effective at it. And I realized that I had to be more proactive in developing that skill set. And so I did everything from Toastmasters to improv classes to reading books and going to speech coaches. And the biggest thing I did is just go out, getting out in front of people and talking a lot on different subjects. Sometimes there were small groups, sometimes there were big groups. Uh, and each time I learned a little bit better and more about how to present, what worked for me and what didn't. And so now, you know, maybe 300 presentations later, I'm much more comfortable doing that to the point where uh, I think just yesterday I gave a presentation and hadn't really thought about what I was going to talk about until I opened my mouth. Uh, and I spoke for a straight hour in a webinar. Um, and the day before, I did something similar. So, and now it's almost like uh, a thing I kind of put myself through where to see how little I can prepare before I actually get in front of an audience and speak. So that's just where I'm at right now. Um, so that's how I entertain myself, I suppose. But each of us have certain things that hold us back and fear and, you know, maybe sometimes lack of skills or um, a fear of failure, whatever it is, may hold us back. And confronting it is the most important thing. You know, there's behavioral therapy, which I may have mentioned earlier during the conversation. The common example that behaviorists use is that, you know, someone who maybe is afraid of spiders, they have arachnophobia. And they go see a psychologist and the psychologist says, okay, well, well, here's a book and, and there's a picture of the spider. Are you afraid of that? It's like, well, well no, I'm not, not afraid of that. It's like, okay, well, uh, let's, let, okay, that's good. That's our first, our first uh, treatment session. Next week, maybe they pull up a video of a spider on a YouTube video and maybe the person's not a little screamish. Like, yeah, I, I can watch that. Okay, well, why don't you watch these videos or watch this movie about spiders? Okay. And next day it's like, okay, how come, you know, next week go to a zoo go somewhere that has a spider exhibit and, you know, get real close to the glass or behind glass. They can't do anything to it. Okay. And then eventually, you know, the person brings a spider into the room. It's like, okay, you don't have to touch it. Just, just look at the spider. And then maybe the following week, you know, you open the box and you actually look inside and the week after you pet the spider, the week after you're holding the spider and eventually you're over the fear because you've in incremental steps confronted your fear. You don't like just run in and just grab the spider. You find, uh, things that you're okay with. And public speaking is no different. Whatever fear you may have is no different. You find where it's comfortable. For me, public speaking started with meeting with people for coffee, just one-on-one. -on -one. I figured, well, you know, I'm, I'm introverted, but I can certainly sit down with a person across a uh, table and drink a cup of coffee with them. I did that probably three to 500 times um, to the point where I became a pretty good conversationalist and became actually a very good listener because, you know, sitting down and drinking that much coffee. Um, certain people at Starbucks have known it pretty well. Uh, and then from there, I moved from the one-on-one -on -one to small groups. And sometimes I present to small groups and I did a lot of webinars for a while. Certainly this was before the pandemic, the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. And I found that doing webinars wasn't 
that overwhelming because you know you're in comfort of your home or in an office mm-hmm. and you just see people on the screen a lot of them have the screens turned off it's not that big of a deal so i must have done 100 plus webinars and i started doing a lot of podcasts i recorded a lot of podcasts so again one-on-one not that big of a deal uh, recorded a bunch of those and then eventually started uh moving from peoria and clo- closely moving to target call getting bigger and bigger presentations and at no point was i afraid or nervous because each step was a very thoughtful, premeditated step that got me closer to the point where being in front of an audience just was second nature. And I think for entrepreneurs, for anybody who wants to try something out, you know, I'm not saying run away from your day job, but in the evenings or the weekends, start thinking about what that next step is and what you need to do, what tools you need, what education you need, and start laying the foundation. Maybe you need to take a night class, maybe you need to read some books, maybe you need to find other folks that are already in that field and invite them for coffee and pick their brains. But start doing the little things so that when the time comes to make a decision, it's not that terrifying because you can look at yourself and look at the magnets of work you've done and figure, okay, well, I've actually laid the foundation for this. And now the transition from leaving this nine to five, whatever job you have, something that uh, has a lot bigger uh, upswing, but has a lot of risks doesn't seem that overwhelming. Yeah. And you mentioned improvisation. I know uh, a couple of CEOs when they came to that level and getting up in front of big groups and having, you know, presentations and, and things like that, they were always kind of nervous to get up and talk. So they took an improvisation class and they actually did, um, I think, stand-up comedy classes and things like that. How was that for you? Was that, was that one of the reasons you went for the improvisation? I did. And for your viewers or listeners who don't know, in most major cities, there is an improv troupe, more than one. And most of them put on classes. They generally put on a series of classes where there are different levels. And I did a couple of those levels. I did level one and two. And usually do four, five, six. And then there are other things you can do. Uh, and the course I took, and I think this is true for most of them, was over eight weeks. It was on Thursday. And each evening we get together and run exercises and do different routines and skits. And then on the eighth week, we actually put on a show for our family and friends. And, and again, there's no rehearsing for this in the sense that like you're not actually like preparing lines you're trying to actually think of what you're going to say you know there's a call out to the audience you know come up with a, a relationship come up with a scene where are we okay scene and then people who are on the stage have to say, do something that yeah. is at least somewhat funny um and you can't just stand up there and freeze you can't uh you know you you have to try to be humorous in some level and at first, it's, it's nerve-wracking as hell, even just being in class, because in the back of your head, you know that eight weeks you're, you're going to put on a show. And it was a lot of fun, actually. And I did it, and I did it again, and then eventually couldn't take the other classes, but my schedule didn't allow me to really have to be committed to you know, going there every week, and a lot of times I travel for work. But uh, for anybody who, again, and I know we're focusing a lot on public speaking, if you are in a position where public speaking is important, and that's true if you're a leader of a company or a firm, if you are CEO, CFO, if you are manager, being in front of people and being authentic and comfortable and casual does not come naturally to most people. And spend the 200, 250 bucks on the improv class. Uh, be willing to make a fool of yourself. Realize that you're going to survive and that it's okay. And it's really, um, I think, the best approach. I think it's even better than Toastmasters. Toastmasters uh, is in every major city. There's probably not a Toastmasters. You can't throw a rock out and not find meeting within you know, a mile from wherever you're at and they generally cost between $150 for the annual dues 
and they meet weekly. And I think that's a great program because I did that for a while as well. But I would even say that improv, um, and yes, it is comedy related, is probably the best for any person who's doing public speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Toastmasters has their table topics, same type thing. You pull a, something out of the hat and it says, talk about this topic, and you just go. It's more related to, I mean, actually giving a presentation on that, right? It's not always humorous, but I love the improvisation. I love the improvisation. I think that's so great. It gets you to think on your feet, listening to everybody else around you and make sure that it's cohesive, you know, things you're doing. Yeah. That's fun. A lot of fun. But again, where'd you get the, where'd you get the courage? Were your parents um, courageous like that? Were you learning? Well, I had gone through a period of chronic depression. Uh, I want to say through the period of 2013, 2015, it was really debilitating, and I, I didn't find medications to be working, counseling to be working. And if your listeners are going through counseling or medications, don't don't walk away from that. But um, but I just personally wasn't responding to it, and I realized that I had to do something drastic in order to kind of turn things around for me. So I felt like, well, let me at least face this big fear I have, or other fears that I have, one of which was public speaking. And let me at least front it and try to overcome that. And maybe in part, that'll help me get out of the depression. At least it'll distract me, if nothing else. And so it really wasn't so much a sense of courage as it was a coping mechanism to deal with the underlying depression and anxiety that I was dealing with. And so public speaking, I had a lot of writing too. I, I had been writing until then, but not as much. And I want to say, I had already written a book uh, for young lawyers for the Florida Bar back in 2007. Really hadn't written, I had written a lot of articles, but I hadn't written another book. My next book doesn't come out until 2016, I believe, which was the Associates mm-hmm. Handbook, which I mentioned earlier. And then every few months I'm writing a book. Uh, the, the output is just nonstop. And somehow something clicked where, like, I realized, instead of looking at everything sort of as the glass half empty, the glass was certainly half full, if not more so, certainly were flowing. And, I think that's true for any one of us that once we get over what's holding us back, if we know, if we're in the right space and we're where we're supposed to be, our output can be overwhelming and certainly can exceed any expectations we may have. And often we're our biggest critics and the biggest reasons we're not accomplishing what we want to do. Yep. Absolutely. So we talk about different types of courage. Um, intellectual courage, the courage to set aside your long-held beliefs, your current knowledge to make room for brand new knowledge, right? Which can be scary for some people. A lot of uh, leaders don't want to admit that they don't know. They think they have to be the smartest person in the room. So saying, I don't know, or I need help, or I'm not sure, can be a little scary for them. There's um, social courage, saying what needs to be said, when it needs to be said, even if it's unpopular uh, or uncomfortable. Um, Empathetic courage, being able to set aside your emotions to make room for somebody else's, right? Without losing phase, but with also without taking on their emotions as, as yours and things. A lot of these different types of, of courage. Is there a certain type of courage you think is most important for leaders or entrepreneurs? I think the most important courage is understanding what failure is. I think most of us see it as something to avoid at all costs. And I think it's integral to the development of any leader or entrepreneur. And we often ignore folks like, Edison and Ford, who made hundreds of thousands of mistakes and failed tens of thousands of times, and and they never saw it as a as something to you know cry over. You're like, okay, well, this next mistake gets me closer to figuring this out. You know, the next no gets me gets me closer to the next yes. And so, whether it's in sales or marketing, whether it's creating a new product or a new service, 
there's a lot of beta testing involved. There's a lot of seeing what works and what doesn't involved. And the odds are that the first time on the box, it's not going to work. You know, the, the first rock to be launched and fly very far, the first plane to go very far. And if somehow people thought, well, that's it, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. It just it didn't work. So I think most entrepreneurs and leaders and so forth have to be okay with that. Now, at some point it has to work, obviously. At some point, uh, maybe you learn that the beta testing is that you have scrap one idea and approach another, and that's perfectly fine. Um, and you can always, you know, change the steps you take. The goal shouldn't change. You know, the mission, the endpoint doesn't change, but the process, the checklist, the steps, the protocols can and often it should change. And and so if you if you know where you're going, where you want to be, and what you ultimately want to accomplish, the line is never a straight line. And often there's a lot of pitfalls and obstacles in the way, and a lot of heartache and disappointment and frustration. And that's just part of the process. And if people understand better that that's part of the process, I think it makes it a lot easier. So I think most people are like, they fail and then they feel like they're a failure that somehow defines them and they ignore that the most successful people we know made a lot of mistakes. You know, Elon Musk just today, his rocket blew up. Yeah. And, uh, that, yeah. and he doesn't really care. I, I don't think, I don't think he's like, you know, all right, we'll put up another one. Um, it's not going to stop him from trying to, you know, investigate space. It's just not. So er everything we do leads to ultimate success, even though in the short or even medium term, it's, it's not like that at all. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you learn from the mistake, right? You don't right. learn if everything goes perfectly well, you don't learn anything, but if you fail, at something, something breaks, something doesn't, you know, work out the way you thought. What did you learn from it? What do you do different next time? And then go back and try again. Right. Absolutely. Good stuff. Um, on leadership, what do you look for in a leader? I think I'm looking for somebody who really is a good listener um, and good observer and who notices things. I, I think most important skill just to be in a room and being able to read the room and, be, and understanding that everybody in that room may have a different perspective, may have a different approach, may have different roles, may have different wants and needs. And that leader needs to figure out what they are. If you have a team, you're leading a team, you need to know who your team members are and what motivates them, what gets them out of bed in the morning, what keeps them up at night. And it is a lot of work. Uh, and I think leaders who are introspective or egotistical that kind of only look about how others can serve them versus how they can serve their team are, they may achieve things for a while, but ultimately that is not a long-term formula for success. Uh, the better approach is to really have an open mind, listen to people uh, and really get to know them uh, at the personal level as much as you can. And obviously the bigger your team, the harder that is to do, but at the very least, certainly the folks that are within one or two circles of, of you in terms of the organization, uh, being able to really understand where they're coming from is important. And I think leaders who do that, who put that into practice, who remember people's, uh, the names of their spouses and their kids, and the fact that Johnny played soccer and Susan is about to graduate from high school, those are sort of people that do much better in their organizations. Nice. Absolutely. Very cool. Um, how many folks do you have working at your firm? Uh, between lawyers and staff, probably about 20 or so. Nice. Yeah. And you were at a firm before. I was. I was at a much larger firm, which now has, I think has about 400 plus lawyers nationwide. Wow. 
And, you know, whenever you start an organization or whenever you belong to one, you have to find one that's the right size for you and has the right fit and the right culture. And obviously, I've liked this culture that's been here as long as I have. Uh, for some people, the big organization, the big company works well for them. Some people prefer the startup, prefer some mom and pop shop. And you, you need to figure out who you are first before you either start your organization or join them. So if I was to bump into any of these folks on the road and talk to them about you and ask them what kind of leader you are, what do you think they'd tell me? What kind of leader are you? Uh, I think they would probably think I'm a servant leader where I'm more interested in finding out what they need and how I can help them versus how they can help me. And certainly they help me a lot, but I always make a point to listen, uh, help them with whatever is going on, both professionally and in their own personal lives. And like I said earlier, like if you tell me something, it's in a stick because I'm really listening to you. You're not going to have to repeat in the same anecdote or story. And I think that makes a big difference. I think we're so accustomed to small talk and going to one event to the next and just having words go into one person's ear, not the other, that when somebody is really listening, it's quite refreshing. And I think, uh, and I think if they use one word, I think they would probably say that I listen to them. Nice. Yeah, my wife pointed out something to me years ago. Um, if you're in a restaurant, you know, usually after the meal is served, the manager walks by and says, how is everything? Look at their feet. If their feet are pointed towards your table, then they care about what your answer is. If their feet are pointed up the aisle, they're just kind of doing a drive-by. They don't really care. It's one of those, how you doing, how you doing, how you doing. And I think with management and leadership, I think it's the same way. If you're going to stop and talk to your employees, be there. Face them, listen, get engaged. Don't just walk by going, how you doing? How you doing? You know, take your time and listen. Yeah, that's a great story. That's a great end. She's brilliant like that. I'll keep her around. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, and well, your leadership style you talk about, I think, is, is indicative of the books and articles you've written because they're to help other people be better at what they do. You know, you're looking out for, here's something that you may not know already. So, Here's a, here's a book for you, a little handbook to, to, or this is something they didn't teach us or didn't teach us well enough, you know? And, and so I think it's, it's indicative of your, your management style. I like that. Yeah. And I think I wrote the books largely for selfish reasons initially, because I needed to think through these issues myself. I needed to think through marketing and sales and leadership and all that. And so I sat down and really thought through those issues and thought through them from every vantage point perspective enough that there's a book to write. And, and then I was able to then teach it to people. And I think if you have an idea or a thought or a process, you can put it to writing and then show, educate others that it's something that becomes second nature to you until you can incorporate in your business or whatever you do. And so my process of writing books is one largely self-educational and then secondarily so trying to help others learn what I kind of learned in real time. Yeah. And I think it's great that they're available on your website and they are free. Most of them, I think almost all of them are free, right? Right. For people. So what's next for you? Aside from the great American novel, what's on the horizon? Uh, you know, I'm doing a lot more public speaking and I'm doing some consulting and I'm really intrigued by how technology is going to change our careers and change just work life. Uh, I think this is sort of the biggest change since the industrial revolution and chat GPT four, which will be 4.5 in the fall and 5.0 next summer. Uh, we're 
I don't know if we're going to reach a point of singularity when somehow the computers are smarter than us, but we are going to get to the point where a lot of people are going to be displaced, work is going to be redefined, a lot of things are going to become autonomous. And, I, and the only way you can really make a difference and a distinction is to stay ahead of the curve. Uh, and I don't think robots are going to replace us. I don't think AIs are going to replace us, but I think people who know how to use robots and AI are going to replace people who don't. And so understanding and incorporating and relying on and using technology is really important whether it's a lawyer or an accountant or whatever you do, uh, appreciating what change is happening now, what's coming down the pike and learning how to make the most of it. Is, you know, chat GPT-4 for a lot of employers, it's like having an employee without paying them. And if you're not paying that employee, then that person's suddenly being dismissed. What is that person gonna do with their lives? So, you know, it's no different than the artisans who are replaced by the assembly line or the scribes that are replaced by the printing press. Life goes on, you know, they do other things, but we're really at a precipice of really wholesale change in the workplace. And I don't think we appreciate that. And some people are trying to slow it down. It just really can't slow it down. I think that poor already is not sustainable. It's not coming back. So just getting ahead of it is what's really most important. Yeah. It is a little scary. The chat GPT uh, can, can generate articles for you. You've got the deep fake uh, videos that are out that look like it's a politician talking. It's really not them, right? Um, UFO videos. That are you clearly they're they're um graphic but but they're getting better and it's it's starting to blur that area is this real is this fake is this you know some combination of each yeah it's a little concerning <laughs> hmm. all right topic for another time um thank you for your time really appreciate you being here um if people want to learn more about you and they want to find your books and everything like that possibly the great American novel. Where can they find you? What's your website? Uh, it's MiamiMentor.com. It's just the way it's spelled. Or you can just visit me on LinkedIn or Frank Ramos and scroll down under publications and you'll find my 20 plus books there. It's my articles and you can reach out to me through the website or on LinkedIn. And I'm happy to answer any questions, respond to any inquiries you might have. Perfect. And if they're looking for speakers to come in, you're willing to go and talk yeah, to them? Yeah, let me know. I'm happy to uh, have topic. We'll travel. Awesome. Very cool. All right. I will make sure those links are in the show notes for everybody so they can get in touch with you and follow you on LinkedIn and everything like that. Really and again, yeah. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming by. Oh, thanks so much to you. Appreciate having me. All right. Listeners, hope you guys are taking a lot of notes. Good information here. Definitely check out the website, miamimentor.com. Check out the uh, publications he's got and the articles and everything like that. And uh, yeah, share this episode with your family, friends, colleagues. Make sure you leave a review and subscribe to the podcast because that helps. And stick around because there's always more coming. That's it for me, Coach Harlan saying so long for now.